Well, turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 3. When I was told this was a group that studies the Old Testament, my mind went to the first gospel promise called the Proto-Evangelium, in the Dutch tradition, by the way, called the Mother's Promise. should encourage you mothers. And um, it's a very, very rich promise. But I'm going to do something a bit different this morning. I'm not going to preach on this text, but I'm going to preach on the impact that this text had, first on Adam, then on Eve, and then God himself witnessing to that promise. So my theme is going to be witnessing, witnessing to the first gospel promise. And my points are how Adam did, how Eve did, and how God did. How Adam did it, Eve did it, and God did it. So let's read from Genesis 3, 15. I'll just uh, read it and add just a tad to the reading as I read it so you get the basics of it. And then we'll read to the through chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of God. And I will put enmity, this is God speaking, after Adam and Eve fell, tragically. Sometimes, sometimes this chapter is called the black and the red and the white chapter of the Bible. Black because sin entered into the world and brought darkness. Red because blood is shed. You'll see that in verse 21. And white because it's a chapter of hope, a chapter of hope. I, God is speaking now, actually speaking to the serpent, which is interesting. I will put enmity between thee, Satan, the serpent, and the woman, that is uh, Eve, and between thy seed, Satan, and her seed, that is Eve's seed. So God is coming and he's saying, right now, Adam and Eve you're forming almost like a covenant with Satan. You've abandoned God, but I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to come in my sovereign grace. I'm going to put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman's and her seed. And then notice this, it, and it in Hebrew is singular. There is one seed coming, a singular person who shall bruise thy head, your head, Satan. In other words, he shall crush you. And that seed, of course, is Jesus, the seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou, Satan, shall bruise his heel. Now fast forward to the cross just a moment with me. Jesus is crushing the head of the serpent on the cross, even as the serpent is thinking he's got Jesus and he's biting the heel of Jesus, having him crucified unto death. But through death, he destroyed him who had the power of death, Hebrews 2, 15, I believe, even the devil. So here you have the first promise of the Messiah to come, the seed of the woman, and this Messiah will conquer Satan, 
This is the first promise, the protoevangelium, the mother's promise. And we're going to look this morning now at the reactions to that, how Adam and Eve and God all bore witness to this promise. So let me read now. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, that thou shouldst not eat of it, thou shalt be cur- cursed. I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall I bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And Adam and Eve, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten the man from the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask thy blessing as we seek to expound this incredible witness of Adam and of Eve and of thyself in response to the first gospel promise. May it be precious to us. May it impact our own lives as we preach it. And may we, who have so much more revealed to us in all the scriptures about the promises of the gospel, From this very first promise, all flowing out as a mighty stream, may we, Lord, live with the faith of Adam and Eve multiplied and expanded and augmented. May we have a robust faith. May we live out of full assurance of faith in this glorious and beautiful gospel of which the seedbed lies already here in Genesis 3. We thank Thee, Lord, so much for coming to that terrible scene of the fall and interrupting the covenant made between Adam and Eve and Satan and destroying it, demolishing it, and promising that Thou would send the seed, even Thy Son, to be the second Adam who cannot fail, who would 
undo all that the first Adam had undone, that we might have life eternal even today. We thank Thee for the gospel. We thank Thee for Thy Son. We thank Thee that all the promises of the Bible are yea and amen in Him. And we ask, Lord, bless this sermon to the encouragement of our souls, and may it stir us up to lay hold of a full-orbed gospel and to live it out with joy and gladness. May the joy of the Lord be our strength through Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm focusing narrowly then this morning on verses 20 and 21. And 4 verse 1. Verse 20 is Adam's response to the gospel promise. Adam called his wife's name Eve. 4 verse 1 is Eve's response. She conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten the man from the Lord. And verse 21 is God's response to his own promise. The Lord God did make them coats of skins and clothe them. So Genesis 3.20 is just an incredibly remarkable verse. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And why do I say that's remarkable? Well, because it stands in stark contrast to the verse just before it. Verse 19. The Lord informs Adam, In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return again. Adam, you're going to die. Do you understand that, Adam? You were created to live. I told you that if you ate of the forbidden tree, this was your period of probation, you ate of the forbidden tree, you have chosen death over life. Adam, you've destroyed everything. And Adam immediately turns to his wife and says, your name shall be Ahawa in Hebrew. Life. You go, what? Eve? Eve means life. Living. What are you doing, Adam? Are you just avoiding the truth? What's going on inside of you? God just told you you're going to die. And you turn to your wife and say, life? Seems to make no sense. And yet, it's what Adam says. He, he believes it. How, how do we make sense of this? Well, Adam also heard the promise. He also heard Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman, between thy seed, Satan, and her seed, the seed of the godly, and it, singular, Jesus, shall bruise thy head, Satan, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So the result of this first gospel sermon that God preaches in Genesis 3, 15 is that Adam turns to his wife and changes her name. Hadn't the Lord spoken about the seed of the woman, which would destroy the seed of the serpent? Well, that seed would be born out of his wife. He knew that. 
in our confused culture, when people tell, say that men can have babies, I mean, Adam knew that was impossible. There was only one that could have that seed. His wife, Eve. She would be the mother of all living. She would be the one who would, through her womb, open the gates of humanity to the gospel. And people would be saved. She's the mother of all living. So it's a bold name. Eve, life, living. A very bold name. But Adam's boldness is not rebuked by God. He hears God's death sentence pronounced in relationship to, relationship to himself, but he also hears God's life sentence promised in the seed, in the second Adam, the promised deliverer. A life sentence that will be more powerful than the death sentence. Because Christ's righteousness always exceeds our unrighteousness. As bad sinners as we are, his promises are always stronger than our sins. The gospel is almighty because Jesus is almighty. The Puritans used to say, gospel, salvation, Jesus. They're nearly synonyms. And the promises. Jesus is the promises. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is salvation. His name, Jesus, Jehovah saves. He is salvation. And that is almighty. And so for the seed coming, I turn to you, my dear wife, and I say, your name is Eve. It's an act of faith on the part of Adam. Now, that wasn't Adam's first naming of his wife. He first called her woman, didn't he? He first called her woman. He said, this is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe-man, or woe-men, that is, taken out of man, because she was taken out of man. Scholars have called this Adam's wedding song. It's in poetry. It's a beautiful song. It's like he understands. <laughs> He's been naming all these animals according to their name. But there's nothing that matches him. Nothing even resembling him. Man is not an animal. But once he sees Eve, whoa, she's so beautiful. And she's so fitting for him. Martin Luther, of course, Luther said about just about everything, but Luther said, Eve must have been so beautiful that had you seen her, because it was in the state of perfection, you'd almost be tempted to bow down and worship. But Adam, Adam sees immediately, this is a partner designed for me. And he breaks out into song and he calls her woman. This is his wedding song. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. He had embraced her. He loved her. He walked with God with her in the garden, in the cool of the day. It was a perfect marriage. No sin in this marriage. Till they ate of the fruit. Till they ate of the fruit. And ever since then, there's no such thing as a perfect earthly marriage. You may have a wonderful marriage with your spouse, praise God, but it's not perfect. 
Don't expect perfection from your spouse. We live in a fallen world. We're sinners. Sin has consequences. But now, when they ate of the forbidden fruit, you see, sin wreaks havoc in this first marriage, doesn't it? What does Adam say when God comes to accuse him? Well, the woman, the woman, not such a beautiful name now, whom, whom thou hast given me. Her fault, your fault, God. She, she gave me of the tree. Well, and I did eat. Instead of saying, the woman that gave us me, uh, she gave me of the tree. And I did eat. That's what he should have said. See, it's my fault, Lord. I was the head of the covenant. I knew better. But no, no, Adam blames, Adam blames Eve. You know, it's amazing. When I studied the 29 books the Puritans wrote on marriage, it's so interesting that they had a concept that is just completely foreign to us. That goes back right to this. For 47 years, I've had the privilege of counseling couples. And I have never had a couple come to me with serious marriage problems, with serious marriage problems, where one of the two people, usually both of them, think that the main problem is the other person. And if you could just change that person, we'd have a good marriage. Instead of looking at themselves. What the Puritans said, now, not counting situations where maybe there's physical or severe mental abuse, but in normal marital difficulties, the Puritans said, don't look at how your partner treats you. Because the main thing is, are you doing your job? Are you loving your wife the way Christ loves the church? And are you, wife, are you respecting and showing submission and reverence to your husband the way the church shows to Jesus Christ? You see, in a marriage, if you put God first and you put each other second and you put yourself third and you're focused on your own duties, not on how your spouse is treating you, but how you're treating your spouse, you'll almost be guaranteed a good marriage if you're both Christians and living for God. It's a pretty easy recipe. I tell young couples, six, six ingredients in the recipe. Number one, you put God first. Number two, you put your spouse second. Number three, you put yourself third. Number four, you put God first. Number five, you put your spouse second. And number six, you put yourself third. But Adam doesn't do that here. The woman thou gavest to me. This, this is the, the core essence of the fall. It's always somebody else's fault. I'm always justifying myself. I'm trying to go to eternity justifying myself. And it's tragic. And with some contempt, Adam says this. And this marriage is about ready to fall apart, don't you think? There's no way out. There's death coming. There's hard work coming. There's thorns and thistles coming. It's all Eve's fault. And a little bit God. But not me, Adam. Oh, no, not me. 
But now you see, when God comes and Adam hears these words, these words, I will put enmity. And immediately Adam's heart is changed and he feels enmity now against Satan and he feels enmity against his own wicked heart that he embraced the sin. And he hears the promise that there's a gospel, there's a Savior coming. How much of that he could grasp? Certainly not as much as we can with the whole the biblical revelation. But he grasped enough to know there was a seed coming that was going to bring deliverance. And you see, that in itself begins to restore Adam to his own marriage. Now the focus isn't on Eve and her sin, but the focus is on the seed coming. So this sticks in his mind, this penetrates his heart. And so now he can turn to Eve and say, the very same woman who he just blamed a moment before, he can now say, life. I see life coming from your womb. I see a Messiah coming, a Savior coming. This is simple, beautiful, childlike faith. He's witnessing to the first gospel promise. It's as if he says, Eve, I see in you the first divine promise as the means, the channel through which God will use to fulfill that promise. I see life will proceed from your womb. I see God carrying out his purpose of grace in your seed, a seed that includes not only the godly line that would come out of her, the godly line of Seth, but that godly line would lead all the way to the seed, the prince of life, the Messiah. How simple, how beautiful is Adam's faith in response to Genesis 3.15. So strong, so firm, so immediate. He doesn't come with any ifs or buts or hows. He just trusts God's word completely without, without a moment of hesitation. This is the man who just has plunged the whole human race into sin. He's a big sinner. Sometimes we say, well, if God can save Manasseh, he can save anyone. If he can save Saul of Tarsus, he can save anyone. I say to you, if he can save Adam, he can save anyone. Adam plunged the whole human race into sin. And God comes, and with one word, I will put enmity, and I will send the seed. Adam is born again. He comes to faith immediately. Faith comes by hearing. He hears what God's saying. He doesn't ask for a sign. How can this be? He just believes. He just believes. He receives the promise as a sweet cup of grace to the parched lips of the man who broke covenant with God. You know, Adam's faith puts many of us to shame. It's the first sermon he ever heard, and he got converted. You know, we, we, we're so slow to believe. But God spoke once. And that, a little bit vaguely, about a coming deliverer, but it was good enough for Adam. We've got thousands of promises in the Bible about the gospel. Why aren't you believing? Some of you, some of you may not yet be saved. You may be sitting here, but unsaved. Why aren't you believing the gospel? The gospel has everything to offer to you. And it's true, and it's real, and it can transform your life and transform your marriage. 
if the gospel is good enough for God, he's willing to save you for the sacrifice of his son, why isn't it good enough for you? Adam believes. He might have raised objections. If anyone said, oh, wow, I'm, I'm just too great of a sinner. God would never have mercy on me. Well, that would have been Adam. He had every inclination created in him to obey. He went against the stream of his nature. If there's anyone that's a sinner, it's Adam. He had led in the flood of all evil upon the earth. He opened the gates of death for all creation. He stained the very ground on which he walked with a divine curse. Is there someone here this morning who thinks I've sinned too much, I'm too old, or I'm too hard, God won't have mercy on you? My friend, you're wrong. God can save the greatest of sinners. He promises that. He says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying. That means it's inevitably true. And it's worthy to be accepted by all that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom, notice this, not I was chief, but I am chief. If God can save a man who is throwing Christians into prison, I felt he was the chiefest of sinners that ever lived on the earth. He can save anyone. You know what John Bunyan said about that text? He said the, way, the reason Paul could write that way is because he didn't know John Bunyan. Because I'm really the chief. <laughs> and you see, when God saves you and you know your own corrupt heart, even if you grew up in the church, even if you haven't been openly rebellious, you know how selfish you are. You know that you've never loved God for one moment. You've never loved your neighbors yourself for one second. You've been sinning every single second your entire life. Other people might think you're decent. They might even think you're a Christian. You come to church faithfully. But you know the truth. I say to you this morning, God can save you, chief sinner. God can save you, Adam. Believe the gospel. Believe the first promise of the gospel. For children here this morning, I want to tell you a story, boys and girls. There was a, a young man who was very, very naughty, and he left his mom and dad. He went out in the world. He did terrible, terrible things. I can't even mention them to you. He threw away his life. Just like the prodigal son in the Bible. Remember that story? And then, like the prodigal son, he came to himself. And he said, oh, I've sinned, I've sinned away my whole life. And there's just no way, there's no way my mom and dad will ever receive me back. They will never receive me back. But he wanted to tell them how sorry he was. He was repenting before God, and he wanted to repent to them. So he wrote them a letter, and he said, Mom and Dad, I'm going to be coming close by the, the house, the house where he grew up, where they lived. I'm going to go through the backyard on the train track. 
And if there's even the smallest corner of your heart that will receive me, I know I don't deserve it. You, you, you don't even need to answer. I, I'm unworthy of it. But if there's just the least corner of your heart that will receive me back, would you please just put one white sheet out on the line? And then I will jump off the train and I'll come home. And so when, the, when he was on the train and it was coming closer, his heart was just pounding as he came around the corner. Would there, would there be a white sheet on the line? He comes around the corner and suddenly he goes, what? 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 There's white sheets in the trees. There's white sheets on the roof. There's white sheets on the clothes. There's just white sheets everywhere. See, that's the heart of the prodigal father who embraces his son. That's the heart of Jesus who loves to receive sinners coming home. He's like a parent who, who cannot let go of his child. He embraces Adam. He'll embrace you. He'll embrace you. Come to him just as you are. What an encouragement here for needy, begging sinners that God saves Adam. He turns to his wife and says, Life. He's saved. He understands the rudiments of the gospel even though he's very unworthy of it. Worthy is the seed. Worthy is the lamb. That's what it's all about. It's not about Adam. It's about Christ. That's why you can be saved. Because his goodness exceeds your badness. His righteousness exceeds your unrighteousness. And he loves to save sinners. He's in the business of saving sinners. He delights to save sinners. This is his favorite thing to do. Come to him just as you are. Why won't you come? Nothing to lose, everything to gain. Well, you lose your own self-righteousness, but that's a good thing. But what about Eve? What about Eve? <clears throat> well, Eve too had sinned. In fact, Eve had sinned first, right? Eve had turned out to be a bad helpmate for her husband. She interrupted beautiful marital harmony. She was also involved in the guilt imputed to mankind, even though it came through Adam. So not as a covenant head, but she was the one who tempted the covenant head, Adam, to fall. Paul speaks about that. That was a serious sin. And all she could expect now, of course, was to become the mother of sinners, at best, under the sentence of death. It seemed that she was sentenced to a kind of miserable, painful condemnable motherhood. But she too heard verse 15. She will be the mother of the seed. The seed of all living. And so she's raised up out of the depths of sin. She has a place somehow. She understands it very vaguely, but a place somehow in, in God's plan of Salvation, personally, for her children, her seed. Her seed is going to oppose the seed of the serpent. God's going to do a wondrous thing. And she believes it. And now her husband confirms it. As he turns to her and says, Eve, the mother of all living. Yes. She says, I, I believe that. She doesn't say, Adam, you're dreaming. Adam, this will never happen. This is too much. We're just bad sinners, Adam. 
No, she embraces it. She embraces it also. She celebrates it, in fact. She receives her new name by faith. She too understood something of what God promised in the curse of the serpent. And that's implied even by her silence of approbation in receiving this new special name from Adam. And so the result, well, the result is far-reaching. Not only are their souls saved, but their marriage is restored. Their marriage is restored. Adam looks at his wife with loving eyes again. His love flows from a loving heart. He calls her Eve. There's no bitterness now in his tone of voice. There's love again because they have a common faith in God's promise. A new life expectancy surges through both of their veins. God is good. God is good, honey. God is good, Adam. God is good, Eve. The tie that now binds them together is stronger than the natural and physical one. It's a tie of faith in Christ. Adam and Eve find each other again in the seed to come. This is the cement that will hold their marriage together from now on. And it's still the cement that binds true, good marriages together today. You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, God's common grace may be prevalent in in your marriage, and you might get up to a level 5 or so. Pretty decent marriage. But if you have faith in Christ, both of you, husband and wife, and He's your life, and you live out of Him, and you love each other in Christ, it can be 11. It can be wonderful. Because you're bonded in Christ. You're bonded in Christ. See, when you're not bonded in Christ, then you you expect your partner to meet all your needs. But no one partner can meet all your needs because you're both fallen sinners. But when you know that Jesus can meet all your needs, you see, then you don't burden overburden your partner. And you accept some of the weaknesses and you accept the sins of your partner, even though you try to correct one another in love. But you realize you're both sinners. You're traveling together as sinners. You're traveling together trying to sanctify each other. It's beautiful. God's plan for restored marriage in crisis is beautiful. And so they come back together again. It's just such a wonderful love story implied in this passage. No hard words now from either side. Soon they will be expelled from paradise. They'll enter a world that will prove to be a veil of tears. The earth will produce thorns and thistles. Adam's task will be hard. He'll earn his bread in the sweat of his face. As for Eve, she will experience the pain of childbearing and even more pain in childrearing. But there's hope. The seed, the seed is coming, you see. And somehow, they don't know exactly how, but somehow salvation is on the way through the seed. God will set straight what they have made crooked. Where sin abounds, Grace will much more abound. Now, was that always easy for Eve to believe that? Probably not. First, it wasn't maybe so hard. Eve had a baby. And she called him Cain. There was expectation. 
Cain, the name Cain means the man received from the Lord. <laughs> she thought God was going to fulfill the promise right away. This is the seed. This man's going to be the savior. The man. She celebrates. As if she says, I've got him. Here he is. Well, that was a short celebration. She is disappointed. She must have looked at that little boy as he started to sin against, break all Ten Commandments. Oh, Lord, where's the seed? Adam and Eve had so much to learn. They both had to taste the bitter fruits of their sin still, even though they're saved. What marital sorrow, what parental strife, what earthly thorns and thistles they had to endure. How profoundly they had yet to learn that God's promise often runs through deep waters, often through staggering impossibilities, so that we learn with man the promised salvation is impossible, but with God all things are possible and sure. Cain was a bitter disappointment. As a young boy, they realized his sinfulness, no doubt. And then Eve bore Abel. You know what the name Abel means? Vanity. They were so disappointed with Cain that their expectation is crushed. So disappointed. Vanity or you could translate it just a breath, just transitory. Oh, what a depressing name Abel is. Eve's faith must have been at a low ebb when she named him that. She must have been at the point of the psalmist in Psalm 42, Psalm 43. Where is now thy God? Must have been a dark, deep tunnel. Where is the sign of God's promise? And then it gets worse. Cain kills his brother. So now Abel, who was a God-fearing boy, who was a godly line, who actually was a contradiction to his name, wasn't vanity, gave them hope for a little while. He's dead, and Cain, is, Cain disappears. They're childless. And, and the promise of salvation is supposed to come through the seed, and where Cain is, we don't know. Abel's gone. Lord, where is thy promise? You know, I, I can't help but picture Adam and Eve sitting alone in their living room, talking to each other and saying, Oh, honey, the bitter, it's the bitter fruits of our sin. It's the bitter fruits of our sin. Here we sit childless. It seems like there's no future. It's all our own fault. No, Eve says, No, no, Adam, it's my fault. I, I gave it to you first. No, Adam says, It's my fault. I was ahead of the covenant. I ate it. How will this ever come out good? No child. Like Abraham and Sarah, no child. But God comes. God comes in the midst of the struggle with a promise, and he gives them a third son. And Eve's hope surges again. They call his name Seth, which means appointed or restitution. God's coming back. God's coming back with his promise. He's going to triumph with life again. And Seth was the God's line of fulfillment. 
What a joy to Eve Seth was as a child. She sees the line of fulfillment carried out. But oh, the antithesis, the ungodly line of Cain. Number seven, the number of fullness is, is Lamech. Wicked, ungodly man. Killed other people. But the godly line of Seth, you know who the seventh was? Number of fullness, Enoch, who walked with God. 300 years from the time he had children, when he was about 65 years old, to the time he was 365 years old, he walked with God. It was the godly line. Still wasn't the seed, but that was coming. That was coming. And so for 4,000 years, the godly line continued. Satan tried to squelch it, cancel it, annul it, destroy it. But there was Noah who walked with God. There was Abraham who was a friend of God. There was David. In the fullness of time, there was Christ. 4,000 years later, the promised seed is born. The name Eve is fulfilled. The promise himself has come. How different are God's ways from Eve's expectation? You see, everything, everything from Eve, everything from her righteousness, everything of her reasoning, everything of her hope, it all has to be, it all has to be cut off. She is unworthy, but yet her faith doesn't die. She calls her son restitution. And now, you see, 4,000 years later, from the ashes of doubts and fears, the flame of faith and hope bursts forth for all the ages. And so the church, the everlasting church, the church here to the end of the world, the church right here now in front of me at these moments, you see, always has to learn this experientially. He must increase. The seed must increase. I must decrease. The ways are cut off from my side, but in Him and in His promises and His gospel, there is hope beyond all expectation. Well, Adam and Eve lived a long time, 900 some years. Can you imagine? Here, if you live 90 years, if you're a devout Christian, you can't wait to be with the Lord. Imagine waiting 900 years. They saw so much sin. They saw so much sin. They saw these lines of generations on both sides. They saw the line of sin. They saw the line of grace. They saw the line of Satan. They saw the line of, of Christ. They saw the promise being fulfilled. The antithesis was so sharp. Grace superabounded over all the sin they brought into the world. By that grace, they kept alive throughout the, throughout the centuries. Like Simeon, they lived by faith, longing, longing to hold the Christ child, but never getting it in their lifetime. Their entire lives are a testimony of the battle, the holy war between faith and unbelief. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb. But there's one more who testified to the promise, and that's God Himself. Look at verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. What an interesting verse. What in the world does that mean? Well, in verse 15, God proclaimed the first gospel sermon by way of verbal promise. Here he visualizes 
that first gospel representation by sacrifice, by symbol, by action. Here we meet the first bloody sacrifice that points to the substitutionary bloody atonement of Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve may not have realized all of this yet, but God's amazing action in front of them actually is the beginnings of the teaching in the Bible of the doctrine of justification. We're saved, we're saved through the washing, cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. He had to die so that He could clothe us with His robe of righteousness. And as we read in in Zechariah that our filthy garments would be taken away, we'd be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Adam and Eve needed a better covering than their own. Even after they were converted, they, they, their works, their righteousness is not good enough for God. They need a perfect righteousness. The seed needs to die for them, for them to be saved. When they look at themselves, I think they must have felt just like Martin Luther. He's, Martin Luther, I just came across this saying of Luther recently. It's an amazing one. I, I cut it out. I taped it to my computer. So I see it every day. He said this, Lord, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can possibly be saved. And when I look at Jesus, I don't see how I can possibly not be saved. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. That's why the Puritans used to say, you do have to look at yourself in order to appreciate the gospel and need the gospel. But for every look you take at yourself, make sure you take 10 looks to Jesus. Because He's the Savior. He's the Savior. So, There's Adam and Eve. What is God doing? Suddenly, boys and girls, God comes in front of them and he he kills an animal. Adam and Eve had never seen death. This is shocking. And then God takes the skins of the animal and clothes them. They realize something very important is going on here. God's a tailor, like a tailor in a clothing store, and he fits the the skins on their bodies. It's the gospel. It's God saying, this is what the seed will do. It's God bearing witness to Genesis 3.15. This is what the seed will do. He will shed His blood, and His righteousness will clothe you. O ye of little faith, trust me. Trust the gospel. Now, in Michigan, we have an overabundance of deer. I don't know how many deer you have, but it's nothing to drive along the highway and see... I don't know. Drive to Detroit, you can see 20 deer laying on the side of the road. You don't even think a thing of it anymore. But one time I was with my wife, not too long ago actually, in a foreign country, and we're driving along the highway. There was a dead horse on the side of the road. It's like enough to take your breath away. Horse. Did Did you see what I just saw, honey? A dead horse? Yeah, I thought thought it was too. Are you kidding me? Well, they must have thought that times a hundred. When God comes and kills an animal in front of them, there was no death pre-fall, you understand. They had never seen anything die. They'd never seen a mosquito die. And now, God takes the skin of these animals and clothes them. This is graphic. This is powerful. God is teaching them something big. 
only by the cleanth. There is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. See, that's what they would pass on to Abel. Abel would never come to God without blood. Cain would. Cain was bold. He thought he'd come with his own righteousnesses. What about you? When you come to God, do you come with blood? Do you come with the blood of his son, the blood of the seed? See, that's, that's the only way to come to God. Our, our works are never good enough. Boys and girls, you might, be, you might be good to your mom and dad. They might say, you're a good girl, you're a good boy. But you need the blood of Jesus to be saved. You young people too, you need the blood of Christ. Because we're all sinners. We need to be clothed. We need to be convicted of our own unrighteousness and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Good works can be valuable from a human point of view, but they will never deal with the basic problem we have, the problem of sin. You see, boys and girls, it's sort of like, it's sort of like playing Monopoly. You know what it's like to play Monopoly? You got a lot of fake money, right? And you use that fake money to buy properties and you get rich and then you, you, beat, you beat your brother and your sister and you're really happy. But if you were to try to take that money that you had, you had a whole fistful of money at the end of the game, you try to take that to the bank tomorrow and you say, I want to deposit this. The banker would say, that money isn't worth nothing. That's all fake. Oh, what a disappointment. You worked so hard to win that game and it's worth nothing. <laughs> but you see, that's the way a lot of people will experience. And don't you be one of them. When they come before God on the judgment day, they'll bring all these works and say, Lord, 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 I want to enter in. Jesus will say, I've never known you. I've never known you. I've never washed and cleansed you with my blood. There's only one thing that can get you into heaven. One thing. One passport, the blood of Jesus. But you've got to have that in your hand. And you've got to be able to hand it to Jesus at the gates of heaven. Lord, I'm here. I'm here. Only on the basis of thy blood. Only the seed has crushed the serpent in me. It's all to thy glory, Lord. Thou art my judge, but thou art also my Savior. So I'm coming in by the blood. I'm coming in by the blood. What a beautiful, what a beautiful thing that is. But if you don't have that blood passport, no entrance. No entrance. You've got to be clothed with the right, bloody righteousness of Christ. I was doing a wedding in Grand Rapids. <clears throat> Grand Rapids is, you know, parallel with Ontario. And uh, the best man in the wedding was uh, coming across from Ontario, and he forgot his passport. And you know, boys and girls, you know what he said to the man at the border? He said, sir, I don't know how to say this, but I have to get through. I have to get through. I have to be the best man at the wedding, but I don't have my passport. Please just let me through. And the man at the border said, I'm sorry, young man, but you, you're going to have to miss the wedding. And he had to turn around and go back home, but it was too late. 
to go all the way back and get his passport, come all the way back, he missed the wedding. It's like the five false virgins. The door was shut. If you don't have the blood of Christ, the door will be shut in your face. You understand? You need to know your own sins. You need to repent of your sins. You need to believe the gospel. You need to, you need to find your salvation in the seed of the woman, in the blood. You need to be clothed with the skin of the blood of Christ, as it were. It's the only way to enter into heaven. And you see, that bloody righteousness of Christ, that was good enough for Adam and Eve for all those 900 years. They could meet God that way. And so can you and I. So can you and I. We've got to go in by the blood. I want to, I want to ask you this question. What is your religion? What is your religion? Is it the religion of fig leaves? You try to cover yourself before God with all your works. Or is it the religion of skins, bloodshedding? Everyone's religion, everyone's religion in all the world is really ultimately, when you boil it down, one of those two things. Either you have a religion of fig leaves, a religion of works, or you have a religion of skins, the religion of God's perfect provision through the bloody death of Jesus Christ. Only the last will work. So let me close this sermon with a, with, a, with a beautiful story I actually heard, read. It's a true story. There was a man in Scotland who was a minister, and he was a God-fearing minister, godly man. He had led many people to Jesus. But he just came into tremendous darkness on his deathbed, tremendous darkness. And he couldn't find Christ. And he said to his friends, I'm, I'm so afraid I'll be a castaway in the end. And uh, I don't doubt that God has used me for people, but I am lost. I cannot lay hold of the blood of Christ. And uh, his wife was very upset. She knew he was a godly man. She tried to comfort him. didn't work. She called some of the elders, tried to comfort him. She, she called some of the, the God-fearing people who were close friends with the pastor. They couldn't comfort him. She called even Dr. Um, John Kennedy, a famous minister, actually, in, um, in Dingwall, Scotland. He made the trip over, couldn't comfort him. And one night, this dear minister had a dream. Now, don't put too much stock in the dream, but put stock in what happened when he awoke from the dream, okay? Because that's where God taught him a lesson that I want to cement this sermon with on your conscience so in the dream he saw the gates of heaven big gates beautiful gates and he's heard music and he saw some people coming and he recognized them they were the old testament saints there was david there was abraham and uh, he saw the gates go open and they all went in and a voice said to him in his dream can, can you go in with them can you go in with David, the, the adulterer who murdered someone? And he goes, oh, no, Lord, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm more ungodly than all of them. There's no way I can go in. The gates go shut. 
And then a little while later, he hears more singing in his dream. And he looks. Here comes the New Testament saints. Here comes Peter, who denied the Lord. And he's saying, wow, will the gates go open for them? Sure enough, the gates go open. And the voice comes again. Can you go in with them? No, no, Lord, no, no. And it goes on like that through church history. And he sees the reformers coming. Can't go in with them. Then he sees the Scottish Covenanters coming. Oh, certainly can't go in with them. They, they gave their lives for Christ. And then he sees people in his own congregation. He knows all their sins. He knows their weaknesses. He's been a pastor for a long time. And the gates go open for them. Can you go in with them? And he goes, no, Lord, no. A bigger sinner than all of them. Finally, the gates go shut. He's weeping in his dream. And suddenly, here's music one more time. And there's a lone figure coming. He's stooped over. He's coming along. And the man says, the minister says, Lord, who is this? Who is this? And the voice says, Manasseh, who has filled the streets of Jerusalem with the blood of the saints from gate to gate. Can you go in with old Manessa? Because he's going in by the blood of Jesus. And he wakes up. And he says, call my wife. Call my friends. Call the ministers. Old Hugh McPhail can go in with the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus. And the gates will go open for me. And his bands of doubt and fear were broken. And he went in by the blood of Jesus. That's the way for you to go in as well. Let's pray. Lord, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Oh, Lord, show us our need. Help us to live out of all the promises of the Old Testament, looking forward to the fulfillment in the new, and help us also to be a bright witness of the first gospel promise of Genesis 3.15, and that we too may go in by the blood. Give us the simple and beautiful faith of Adam and Eve, Let thy kingdom come in us and through us and by us to the glory of thy name so that we may live in in Christ and by Christ and through Christ and unto Christ and for Christ forever and ever. O Lord Jesus, we thank thee so much for thy blood, for thy bloody obedience, for thy passive obedience unto death and thy active obedience through life, obeying the law for us, so that we may have a right to eternal life through thy substitutionary obedience. Thank thee, Father, for giving thy Son. Thank thee, Son, for giving thyself. Thank thee, Holy Spirit, for forming thy Son within us, that Christ without has become Christ within. Oh, may we live wholly and solely to thee, the triune God, all the days of our life, and look forward to spending eternity with thee forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.